The Bible reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, which is uh, firstly from Exodus 25, reading from verses 1 to 9, which is on page 83 of the uh, Church Bible, and then Exodus chapter 31, reading from verses 1 to 11. So Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from, for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now in Exodus chapter 31, which is page 90 of the Church Bible, starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezal, son of Uriah, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Oliab, son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you, the tent of the meeting, the ark of the covenant law, with the atonement cover on it, and all other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. Thank you, Harold. So this morning, in a slightly unusual um, experiment, I suppose, in one sense, we're actually going to try and think about six chapters of Exodus together, uh, beginning with chapter 25, uh, verse 1 on page 83 of your uh, church Bibles, and uh, then up to uh, that reading we just heard from chapter 31, uh, in which, across those six chapters, there are extraordinarily intricate descriptions of the materials, the construction, and the practice of this tent. Now, I don't know about you, but I always think of the book of Exodus as being about Israel getting out of Egypt, and yet the final 15 chapters, all apart from one in the middle about the golden calf, the final 15 chapters are all about this tent and its intricate detail, down to the curtain poles used uh, to hang the curtains uh, around it. 
And I wonder if, well, I wonder how you respond to that, what, what your sort of thoughts are uh, about it. I think a lot of people give up reading uh, Exodus after about chapter 20. Uh, you get there, you get the Ten Commandments, you think, okay, well, this all makes sense. And then we start to get into this. It seems a bit weird. It's like all about a tent. Uh, and yet this tent is absolutely mind-blowing in what it represents. Let's just look together at at, at 25 uh, verses uh, 1 to 8. So God doesn't tell Moses to start with what the offering is for. Uh, He just specifies what the people are to give. So anyone who wants to give, he says, okay, well, these are the things. These are the items I'm looking for. Bring these uh, to me. Uh, and um, some of it, it's clear what it's for. Um, the olive oil for uh, anointing oil and the fragrant incense. Uh, onyx stones and other gems. You imagine on the ephod and the breastpiece. And if you're thinking, what's an ephod and what's a breastpiece? Uh, Moses is probably with you because they don't get explained until a couple of chapters later. And then, verse 8. God tells Moses what this is all about. Have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God says to Moses, you build this tent and I will come and live with you. The people are living in tents. They're traveling through the desert. They've left uh, Egypt as refugees on their way to the promised land. And God says, I'm going to join you. I'm actually going to come and live with my people. So build this tent exactly the way that I will show you. And actually, he says this four times, uh, the thing about uh, making it exactly the way I show you. The first is in chapter 25, uh, verse 8. The second is in verse 40, if you look with me, just across the page. Uh, See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Then flick over uh, the page to um, at the end of the chapter. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. That's chapter 26, verse 30. And then chapter 27, uh, verse uh, 8. It's to be made just as you were shown uh, on the mountain. And at the end of the uh, passage we heard from, from chapter 31, they are to make them just as I commanded you. That is the tent and everything that goes with it. God says it's got to be exactly to the finest detail, it's just what I tell you and what I show you. This tent has to be to the exact measurements, the exact specifications made out of the exact materials I will tell you. So on the one hand, this tent is a a means. It's a means for God to dwell with his people, and we'll see how that is uh, in a moment. But it's also a message so the detail has to be shared with uh, Moses. It has to be, uh, the, the, the whole thing has to be built exactly the way God wants it because it's a building, a, a, a construction that tells a story, that gives a message. So I'll show you uh, roughly what it would have uh, looked like. Uh, here it is uh, up on the screen. Don't worry if you can't read the words. that They're not so important. Um, but what you can see, I'll try and... Um, draw on, my, on the screen to, uh, to show you, um, what you can see is uh, the basic structure of it, uh, and that is that you sort of travel through it in that direction. Okay, so uh, the bit that's um, at uh, the sort of uh, bottom of the screen uh, is the east, uh, that's where the sun rises, and then there's this sort of courtyard, and then in the middle there's this tent. 
Uh, and the tent is divided into two, which you might be able to, to sort of make out from, from the picture. I'm sorry uh, if you can't, uh, but the, the very center of it uh, is just in there. Oh, it's not appearing on your screen. Is it? Oh, it is. Oh, great. It's just not, not appearing on the one at the back. That's curious. Right. Um, so, w w what do we observe as we go through? Well, this outer courtyard where there's the, the big altar and then the basin for washing, um, everything in that is made of bronze. Okay? Uh, and then you come uh, to uh, this uh, tent. Uh, which is actually in three layers. So you have um, this incredibly uh, intricately woven woolen uh, sort of uh, fabric, first of all, uh, which is blue and red uh, in these really expensively dyed fabrics, uh, but with cherubim, which is a very particular kind of angel, woven all the way through it. So if you're inside the tent, uh, then you can see it's very beautiful, and, and there are these, these sorts of symbolically, these angels all around. Okay. Then over the top of that, there are these ramskins dyed red, which, which God asked the people to bring, uh, and then another layer, uh, which in um, chapter 25 um, is described uh, in the latest translation of the NIV as another type of durable leather, which is wonderfully vague, isn't it? No one can quite translate the word. Um, it's just sort of helpful to point that out. So this goes over the top of the tent. It's, it's obviously supposed to be waterproof. Uh, for a long time, people thought it was the skin of either dolphins or dugongs. So older translations of the Bible say sea cows, which is quite a cool idea, isn't it? Uh, but, uh, but anyway, um, it's, so it's waterproofed, it's protected, it's insulated. But inside... It is both beautiful and significant in the way that it's set up. So you've got, this, you've got these sort of tents all around the outside and, and, and these, these curtains all around the outside and then, uh, and then over the top in this fabric woven with cherubim. Uh, and then if you go into there, uh, there are three items inside uh, that first bit uh, of the tabernacle tent that you come to. Uh, there's a lampstand with seven branches. Uh, there's a, a table covered in gold. Everything's covered in gold in this space. Okay, there's a table uh, with bread on it, uh, and it must always have bread on it. Uh, and then there's an altar uh, of incense, which is also made completely out of gold. And then in front of you, there is another curtain. And there are very specific instructions about making this curtain. Uh, it's made of the same kind of material. Uh, and there facing you are cherubim again. Uh, and if you were to go inside that final curtain into the uh, place uh, that the arrow is pointing to, uh, to, to the Holy of Holies, you would find just one object, the ark. Uh, and the ark is described in chapter 25, uh, verses 10 uh, to 22. Uh, like other things, uh, God tells uh, Moses that, um, uh, about something he doesn't need yet. He says, in, in this ark, you're to put the two tablets of the covenant which I will give you. So he doesn't have the tablets yet, but this is what the box they're going in is supposed to look like. Uh, again, it won't surprise you, it's covered in gold. Uh, but it only has five sides, so it's open at the top. And then there is another thing that is to be made called the atonement cover. And the atonement cover, again, completely covered in gold, uh, and out of that one piece of gold are molded two giant angels with their wings spread upwards like this, facing each other across the top of it, and that's called the atonement cover. Now, would I be right in thinking that most of us have seen uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Is that a familiar idea? Okay. Uh, so uh, you might remember, you've got the, sort of the two angels uh, on the end sort of facing each other. We'll, we'll come back to Raiders of the Lost Ark in, in, in a minute. Uh, but, but that is what the Ark looked like. It's like a, a, a sort of wooden chest like that, uh, but then with these great angels sort of overshadowing it. 
And what God says to Moses is, uh, verse 22 of chapter 25, I will meet with you between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law. So right there at the heart, right there at the end of your journey, if you can travel through this tent, is the space where God himself dwells, where he will sit, enthroned between the cherubim. And, and, and through the uh, rest of the Old Testament, God is frequently described as the one who sits enthroned between the cherubim. There above, uh, the, uh, the, the atonement cover that sits on top uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, you might have noticed uh, that as you go through, uh, everything gets a little bit more precious. You start off with bronze, and everything in the, tab- in the, in the courtyard is made of bronze. It's, it's acacia wood, but overlaid with bronze, and all the uh, utensils and the altar grills and grates, everything is made out of bronze. The washing bowl, that's made out of bronze. Everything is bronze. You go through the first curtain, suddenly everything's made out of gold. You're traveling in sort of the direction of holiness, in the direction of a sort of value and preciousness. The closer you get to God, the more precious everything is. So, so the snuffers for the candle and, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the things used for sort of scraping the ash out of uh, the altar of incense, everything in that holy place is made of pure gold. So you're traveling towards the presence of God as you go through this tent. You've got to make it exactly the way I said, says God. Why is that? Well, there's a clue uh, when he starts to talk about the priests, what they're to do, what they're to wear. Uh, And if you uh, flick on with me uh, to uh, chapter 28, uh, you'll see that um, the heading in the the NIV is the priestly garments, and then it goes through the the ephod and the breastplate. Thank goodness we're going to find out what those stones were for. Uh, Not today. We don't have time. Uh, But um, uh, Aaron is going to, to... to, to wear these special robes that are designed for him, uh, and uh, they're intensely valuable and expensive. Every metal piece on it is made of gold because he's going into the presence of the living God. Uh, and um, in one sense, unhelpfully uh, titled Other Priestly Garments, it's like, well, we probably ought to put a heading in at some point, this will do. Um, but uh, this robe, at its fringe at the bottom has alternating um, things made of gold, either gold pomegranates or gold bells. Uh, and those bells are to make a sound whenever Aaron, the high priest, goes in uh, to the presence uh, of the living God. Uh, and um, look at the explanation for the bells. It's extraordinary. Uh, chapter 28, verse 25. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. Then if you look on, there's even description of the underpants that the priests are supposed to wear. Uh, chapter 28, verse 42. Make linen undergarments as a cover for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. Uh, and then uh, if you uh, turn on to chapter uh, 30, Uh, verses uh, 20 and 21, uh, we're twice told about these ceremonial washings that they have to do uh, if they're going to uh, offer uh, anything on the altar or or, or go and burn incense before the Lord. Uh, Both times it says, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Why does it all have to be so exact? Well, it's incredibly dangerous. 
That's where Raiders of the Lost Ark got it right. The Nazis think there's great power. Um, you, you know, I'll condense the plot of the, play, the film, play, uh, film into 30 seconds uh, just to, to sort of help you. Uh, the Nazis have, have found the location or have found some secret document with the location of the Ark of the Covenant, and they believe that with the Ark of the Covenant comes an unimaginable power. Uh, and uh, eventually they, uh, they, they get the Ark of the Covenant and they dress people up as, as, as priests and they parade it, uh, and, and then they do the terrible thing, they take the lid off. And can you remember what happens when they take the lid off the Ark? Terrible things come shooting out of it, sort of ghostly, screaming beings, and the faces of all the Nazis melt off, and Indiana Jones is sort of hidden safely away. And there's a sort of sense that there's something inside that ark which is terrifying. But if you read Exodus 25 to 31, it's not what's in the ark that's frightening. It's what's above it. So to enter the holy place, you've got to go past the cherubim, okay? Now, when we think cherubim is just plural of cherub, okay? And when you think of a cherub, what you probably think of is something in a Renaissance painting, you know, a, a sort of bare-bottomed baby with wings, sort of floating around sort of decoratively, you know, with a sort of, you know, carefully draped sash across the waistline. Well, that is not what a cherub looks like in the Bible. The first time we meet cherubs in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. Uh, They're being expelled from the garden. Uh, They've brought the curse of death on themselves. And God throws them out of the Garden of Eden, the place where he lives. Uh, And to stop them getting back in, uh, he puts two things. The first is a flaming sword flashing this way and that. I always think that ought to be said with an Australian accent. I think it sounds rather better. There's a flaming sword flashing this way and that across uh, in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden. But the other thing are cherubim to guard the way. Cherubim are not cute little babies dressed up as angels. They are God's terrifying watchdogs that say, keep away. And so even to enter the holy place, the sort of outer chamber of that tent, is to enter a very dangerous space indeed. Because you're entering the presence of the living God. And there in front of you is this other curtain with cherubs carved into it. Not carved, woven into it. And they say, keep out. Do not enter. Danger. God is here. And then enthroned, not in the ark, but above the ark, between the cherubim, is the presence of the living God himself. The God who, when Isaiah saw him, said, Woe is me, I have seen the Lord, and I am a person of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. This is where the holy, holy God will dwell with his people. And it is dangerous. Because this is God Almighty that we're dealing with. This is the Holy One who cannot tolerate evil in even the smallest degree. He's utterly pure, utterly perfect, blazing like fire. And to enter his presence as a sinful person is to die. And so every day when the priests minister, they take their life in their hands. 
They even have to wear these special pants, uh, chapter 28, uh, verse 42, as I mentioned. Um, in chapter 20, when, when God tells uh, Moses how to build an altar before the tabernacle is built, he says, you mustn't go up on steps to my altar, lest your nakedness is exposed and you incur guilt. And this is the same thing here. It's about covering the nakedness of their, uh, their private parts. Why is that so significant? Well, because it's nakedness that is the first sign that something has gone very wrong with the world in Eden. So in chapter 2, chapter 2 of Genesis ends with this. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. But then in chapter 3, after they eat the forbidden fruit, their eyes are opened and they realize that they are naked and so they hide themselves. And so nakedness is sort of symbolic of our rebellion against God. It's not that the body in itself is in some way evil, uh, but, that, but that, that actually the exposure of the body is something that sort of reveals the shame of sin. And so even down to the underpants, they have to be dressed exactly right, they have to act exactly right, they have to wash exactly right, they have to sacrifice exactly right, because they are entering the presence of the living God and though we can be tempted to be glib about God, we can be tempted to, to feel very at ease with him as though he is sort of domesticated and safe, what one wag termed God almighty, the reality is that we are dealing with the king of the universe who is God almighty. And so the tabernacle is a terrifying place and what is above the attainment seat is unmag- un- unimaginable and unmanageable power in the person of the God who made the whole universe. But what about the detail? What about why it is all uh, so, so five times repeated? You must make it exactly the way I showed you on the mountain. It's a message. The tent sends this message, doesn't it? God is going to dwell with his people, but he's going to be both with them and not with them. He's going to be there, but you can't go to him. The tabernacle both says God loves you and wants to be with you, and also it's impossible for you to have a relationship with him. This is picked up in lots of ways in the New Testament, and and later uh, in the term we're going to start a series in the book of Hebrews. But listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says about uh, Moses' construction of the tabernacle. I'll just read a few verses so that you can get the flow of it and it's not so jarring. Now, the main point of what we're saying, so he says this is the the center of the whole book of Hebrews. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve, this is the key point, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. This physical building, this tent, is a picture of spiritual realities, says the writer to the Hebrews. And every detail of it points to the great high priest, Jesus. 
Uh, and so the reason Moses has to get it absolutely right is because 1,700 years before, he is pointing in detail to the ministry of Jesus. And the writer of the Hebrews explains uh, in, in some detail how that, how that is. Uh, we'll come to that uh, later in the year or maybe at the start of next year. But it's all about Jesus. Think about how John's gospel starts. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're familiar with that from Christmas readings. Uh, but the word is, is actually the word that's used for tabernacle. See, the, the word became flesh, that is, you know, the, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and tabernacled among us. And John says, he's the light coming into the world. Think about what you encounter as you go in uh, through the courtyard and into the Holy of Holies. There's this lampstand. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. There's this table with bread on it. Uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John chapter 2. So John chapter 1, John says, uh, the, 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 the word of God came and tabernacled among us. John chapter 2, uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And his disciples said, after he was resurrected, they realized that the temple he was talking about was his body. The temple is just a, a, a creation in stone of this tabernacle made of tents. And Jesus says, I am the true temple. Jesus uh, is pointed to then by uh, John the Baptist. He says, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the true sacrifice. Jesus is the temple. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the light. He is the bread. He is the water of life. There's this labor for washing. All of it points to him. And so what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? What happens in the temple, this stone tabernacle? What happens? That curtain that hangs between the holy place and the most holy place, with the cherubim woven into it, saying, keep out, this is where God's presence is, you may never enter. In fact, only one person could enter once a year, that's the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement. That curtain is ripped from top to bottom. And the way to the holiest place is made open forever. And this is where the measurements are quite interesting. So if you try to construct uh, in wood a, a sort of version of the tabernacle as it's described uh, in Exodus, what you'll find is that as you go in, You've got this big rectangle, and then uh, the tabernacle is a rectangle, and inside that is a rectangle. And then when you come to the Holy of Holies, it is a perfect cube. As wide and as long as it is high. Listen to this description of uh, John, uh, John's encounter with the angel in Revelation 21 as he is shown the New Jerusalem, the city of God, the place where God's people will all dwell together. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. That is 1,400 miles long. And as wide and as high as it is long. Now, that's a strange description of a city, isn't it? Okay, I can get a city that's on a square grid. It, 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 it's 1,400 miles that way. It's 1,400 miles that way. And it's 1,400 miles that way. It's very unusual, isn't it? Why? Because the city itself 
is the Holy of Holies. All of God's people will live there safely, joyfully, delightedly in his presence. And so, uh, John goes on to say uh, in verse 22 of Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not lead sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives it light and the Lamb is its, thinking tabernacle language, its lamp, like that seven-branched candlestick, the lamp in the temple. Jesus is the lamp. He is the light of the city. God's presence is the thing that gives the city light and there's no need for a temple because God is with his people. And so all of it is narrowing in on and pointing down to one person at one moment in the whole history of the world. Moses, you've got to get this absolutely right because this tent tells the story of Jesus. 1,700 years before. Which in itself is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? But Jesus completely opens up the way to the presence of God. And so we, as God's people, live in God's presence and are free to serve him, all of us to serve him as priests. And the sort of greatest privilege that the priests had was to come to that altar of incense in the holy place, apart from the high priest, once a year he got to go in and put blood on the atonement cover, the place where God's glory is revealed. But the rest of the time, the greatest privilege that the priests had was to go into the holy place and burn incense on that altar before the Lord. Uh, And incense is symbolic of prayer. Uh, And in in the book of Revelation, the prayers of the saints are described as like incense uh, in the presence of God coming up from the altar. Every single one of us, if we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, has that sort of access that we can come and pray in the very presence of God. And, and, and so that's why I say I think the prayer meeting's our most important meeting, not because it's in itself the most important meeting. I know we pray lots of the time, but it's that prayer is the singular privilege of the Christian. It is the most fundamental expression of Christian life. To come to God in prayer is what Jesus has opened up for us. And there are various other ways in which we join in with sacrifices that only priests could do before. Worship is described uh, as a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to God. Our giving is described as a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to God. Our living obediently to God is described as a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to God. We live as priests with all the privileges that were limited just to a few men throughout the history of Israel. Access to the presence of God. Liberty to bring things before him in prayer, to praise him, to enjoy him, to worship him, and to make his heart glad. It's an extraordinary thing to be a Christian. This tent was a means for God to dwell with his people in a temporary way and at a distance. But it had a message, which is that God in his extraordinary mercy and at his own expense was willing to make a way for us to be 
his uniquely special people to enjoy an intimate relationship with him for all eternity. I guess you never thought you'd find that with meter rulings, but there it is. It's extraordinary, isn't it? 